Hello and welcome to Science Chatters. And this episode, for reasons which may or may not become clear, is called Performing Pufflings. I'm Andrew and I'm delighted to be back. I've got two new hosts with me. And don't worry if you're a fan of particularly Emma Whitecamp, she will be involved in this podcast in some way quite soon. But joining me today are... David Judge. Um, I'm a lecturer in the Science Communication Unit. Um, quite a new lecturer, actually, um, but I have been rattling around in the Science Communication Unit for quite some time. Um, I was doing a PhD uh, with the Eden Project, looking at a new exhibition that they've got there um, for a number of years. Um, and also, um, for a few years, I've been working with a group called Rising Ape Collective. Um, and we do kind of theatre performances based around science in a kind of light-hearted and, and fun way. Um, very excited to be here. Lovely to have you. Um, it's nice to have you in the unit officially, though. I mean, you've sort of been part of the unit yeah. for a while, as you say, <laughs> but it's nice to have you as part of the teaching team, for sure. Um, and also joining me, who's joined around the same time as me, actually, is... Cathy Fawcett. Hello. Um, yes, I've been here for, what, three and a half years now. But like David, I've been doing things relating to science and communication. They're not actually... I, didn't, I never called them science communication until I was here, actually. But I was a science teacher for quite a number of years. I worked at a science centre, which is where David and I first met, worked at We The Curious Science Centre, so ran the education programme there. And um, before that, I was an actual scientist. So I did um, research into the effect of heavy metals on plants, um, partly at Bristol and partly here at UWE, looking at the effect of um, radioactivity on plants, actually, is oh, what okay. we did. Okay. Yeah, I was so. going to say, how, how often do you get the joke, doesn't it just crush them? People normally reference music, oh, heavy okay. metal music, actually. That's yeah. more, normally people's go-to okay. joke, actually. Does it hurt their ears, that kind of thing? Yeah, that kind of thing, yeah. yeah, yeah. Doesn't Prince Charles, sorry, King Charles talk to plants? Is he one of the... Apparently. Oh, I think so, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure. There's, there's not much science going on there, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> well, it's lovely to have you both here. And as I say, Emma Whitecamp is part of this podcast because Emma has written a book entitled Science and Theatre, Communicating Science and Technology with Performing Arts. And speaking to former student on the MSc in Science Communication, Rebecca Landon, here is Emma Whitecamp. So the book is in two parts. So my co-author, Carla Almeida, who is from Fio Cruz, which is a research centre um, in Rio de Janeiro, the two of us carried out a, an international survey to try and understand a bit more about the community who create science theatre. So it was a, a survey of researchers and practitioners engaged with science theatre. Um, and we were looking at why do they get involved with theatre so that question you asked me you know why theatre and um, so we asked them that <laughs> obviously people who make theatre make theatre so but the scientists we were quite kind of interested in why theatre and, and also you know what did they think theatre offered as a means of communication that maybe other forms of um, science communication might not so we were really interested in those motivations we were interested in where they hold their theatre because we can think of theatre and maybe we think of the London West End and we think of the Bristol Hippodrome. But actually, when it comes to science theatre, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, there are lots of different places where you might find it. Um, you might find it in schools. Uh, there are travelling theatre companies that work specifically with, with schools. You might find it in communities and um, you might. But then equally, you might find it in the National Theatre. 
So there are lots of places where it can take place. So we were interested in that. Um, we were interested in uh, in understanding how they how they funded it, you know, um, and and also we were interested in who they were trying to reach. So we were interested in in the audience. So the first half of the book focuses on that survey um, and divides up into you know well what what does it what does science theatre mean um, and and so forth. But we didn't want it to be just our voices as researchers, and so as part of our server we asked for people who might be willing to contribute examples from practice so the second half of the book is um, a, a set of case studies um, of people from around the world who um, who have worked with science theater in different contexts so they've very specifically been chosen to present kind of the broad range of different things that you might encounter if you were studying science theater so on the one hand, we have a couple of contributions of people who work very much with researchers, um, one who creates what he calls um, augmented lectures. So they're, they're lectures, but they're, they're partnerships between a, an actor and a, and a scientist. So they, the both of them on the stage, sharing the stage uh, and telling the story. Uh, one of the others, uh, a theatre group from, um, from Coimbra in Portugal, uh, work with um, research centres and produce productions that actually sit within those research centres to an extent. So it's kind of researchers communicating with each other through theatre. Um, so it's a very different approach. Um, a couple of the um, projects are more oriented towards children. So we have uh, one which is music theatre that's aimed at young kids, started off um, Calculus the Musical, how can we communicate math? through music. Um, so that's a, a group from the US. Um, another group um, is doing uh, anthropological um, or uh, communication. So they're communicating anthropological research in South Africa uh, using physical theater and going to remote schools um, to think about you know, how to present this sort of area of science which, um, which connects with the local communities. Um, and then we have other pieces uh, from Argentina, from Brazil, um, which again are offering up specific um, contexts. So um, researchers working and thinking through their own experience first, and also in another case, one working with the Flavellas in, in, um, in Brazil. So, so it can be quite diverse and they do, I think, give a really nice global perspective on what, what science theatre could mean. Yeah, I found some of the examples absolutely fascinating and it felt like there were some real success stories in there. So um, what stuck particularly in my mind was, is it Walking Tall in South Africa um, and some of the comments from participants in that and similarly Smashfest in the UK? Yes, absolutely. I think there are, um, and also probably the other one that is in that space is, is the one from Brazil, um, where they're working with communities that maybe don't have a lot of exposure to the arts. So one of the questions always with something like science theatre is, do you actually just attract people who are both interested in science and theatre? So the vanishingly small intersection in the Venn diagram, or, or do you actually, can, can you reach out and engage much broader communities um, using this type of approach? And I think all three of those projects have demonstrated the ways in which a narrative performed art form, theatre, is able to then connect with audiences who 
are not necessarily hugely familiar with theatre um, and, and certainly not necessarily familiar with the science. And they can bridge that, um, that tricky space where communities that maybe see science isn't for them um, are reached through a much more approachable medium, even though it might also not be a medium that, that they immediately see as theirs either. What are the challenges faced by science theatre? Funding is probably the biggest one. So I think we'd always have to put that one as, as the top priority. Um, most of the projects that we looked at would get institutional funding in some way. So they would be applying for grant funding uh, because this isn't, um, particularly when you're working with disadvantaged groups and so forth, it's not something that you can charge a lot of money for. So in terms of making a living asset, you are kind of de dependent on the way you sell your tickets or the way you can pull in your grant funding. Um, some projects did have uh, institutions that supported them. So they might be housed in a research center that then is able to use some of that research money um, in, in, in the support of the theater as part of their outreach, for example. So, so funding's probably the number one challenge. I think quality is an issue. I, I think um, there can be a tendency within science communication to think that we can just do this and not necessarily to always recognize the skills involved. Um, I think when I've looked at, in my other research on science theater, I've looked at a number of different performances and they've always been led by the theater side of things. And I think that's really important in terms of the quality. It's not that there's an unequal partnership because the science is vitally important in these performances, otherwise they probably don't get classed as science theatre. But you need to recognise the skills of the playwright if it's playwright written, driven, or the theatre practitioners if it's a devised performance in terms of how they tell the story. So most of the scientists I've spoken with over the years have found this is absolutely fine, but one of the things the scientists have to do is let go a bit. Um, and so I think often the theatre practitioners come into it with this sort of fear that the scientists are going to demand accuracy. And, and often they're really quite surprised <laughs> at how willing the scientists can be. But that tension is always there. So that tension between how you tell the story of the science and how you make an interesting play. So it needs to be a partnership. And I think that is a challenge. Um, I think it requires quite a lot of trust on both sides. So there's a lot of issues involved, aren't there, in order to kind of have these success stories, I guess. So for kind of the general public, myself, um, you've definitely whet my appetite. So where could people, um, perhaps in the Bristol area, find out more about where they can access some events or see some theatre or even get involved themselves? So it's always a bit hit and miss on where theatre is. And of course, it's always frustrating for those of us who don't live in London, how much of it is in London. Um, so short of the weekend up to London to go and see whatever the latest play is. I think there are, are quite a lot of companies that engage with, um, with science sometimes. So it's not like a company is going to always be doing science theatre. They, they're picking up a mix of different things. So I'd say keep an eye on those companies locally. Uh, that sometimes do get involved um, and um, there are a number of companies either in the Bristol area or in, in the general broad surrounding areas uh, that might be performing interesting plays. I think I would look at it perhaps that, um, I mean obviously my interest is in science theatre, but my interest 
as an audience member is in theatre. So it's more about keeping track of what's on in the theatre. And then from there, say, oh, that's an interesting one. Ah, actually, that one's got a bit of science content in it. Um, so I don't think people necessarily go out of the way of marketing themselves as science theatre, because that can be a little bit of a put off for some audiences, I think. So it's keeping track of, of what's on locally at any given time. I think that's probably the key. Um, the Cheltenham Science Festival does also sometimes have uh, performed works. It might not be theatre, it might be comedy or other kinds of stand-up. Um, so definitely worth having a look out to see what they've got on. Um, that will be in June. Um, so it's a while to wait for that. COVID has forced a lot of change, but it's also hugely innovated. And there are now opportunities to participate in theatre online uh, through Zoom, for example. Um, and some of those do offer unusual routes for participation. So there are different kinds of performances. It's not the same as going and sitting in a theatre, but it is another way to think about your arts engagement. And it's often uh, well, one of the things I found in doing some research on, on theater, online theatre is that it opens up the capacity to have broader groups because often they send they sell a screen so you can have your whole family so it's a, it's a way you can bring kids into the space uh, where perhaps it would be otherwise very expensive so it's just something to think about um, how technology is also affecting consumption of, of arts um, that we normally think of as live they're still live through zoom they're just not <laughs> live in the same way <laughs> Yeah, there's so many reasons why a person may not be able to attend a theatre. Um, and so I think one of the one of the silver linings of the pandemic has been um, the abundance of um, projects and activities appearing online. Um, and I hope that that's something that continues, um, because for some people, accessing a theatre isn't easy at any time, um, not just yeah. through a pandemic. So I yeah. think that's really important. So thank you for sharing that. There'll be people listening to this who have no science background whatsoever, um, might be interested in science, but haven't studied science particularly. What would you say to them about attending science theatre? What might they actually get out of it? First of all, don't be afraid. Just because it's about science doesn't make it inaccessible. That's the beauty of theatre and that's the job of the theatre practitioners. So they're not interested in making something that's exclusive generally. Um, they're looking to explore ideas. And so most of the performances that I've seen have been more about ideas, um, about the way in which um, science perhaps is impacting on our lives, um, or perhaps it's um, a particular practitioner's own personal experience um, of a particular issue, a healthcare issue or a scientific issue, something that they wanted to, to explore themselves. So that first thing is don't be afraid, <laughs> don't be put off by it. Um, and then in terms of what it offers, I suppose, as with any area of human endeavor, science is part of culture. It's a cultural activity. Um, and um, so these sorts of performances can give you a new window on some of the wonderful things that the human brain does in terms of thinking through research. Same as if it was history, same as if it was classics, all of these sort of areas, they're areas of human endeavor. And I think that's what's really fascinating about it. It's bringing science theatre is bringing together two really fascinating aspects of the of the human mind, the kind of storytelling side, the performing side, um, and the scientific research 
that's that's current and ongoing. I think as you said science touches everyone's lives every day and it can be quite an emotional experience um, seeing that on stage in front of you and realising the extent to which science touches our lives mm. um, and it can have quite an impact and be quite thought-provoking um, so I'll definitely be keeping an eye out. Um, and for someone who was maybe interested in producing some science theatre, either from a science background or from a theatre background, how would you recommend they get started other than by buying your book? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, if you're coming from a science background, a bit of training in science communication would go a long way um, in terms of establishing a career and give you those that sort of background that um, and exposure to a wide range of different um, tools and techniques. So, so that would be the one thing I'd plug the master's program actually. <laughs> um, but having said that, um, I think it's about keeping an eye out for those roles and that might bring you into contact. So you could approach this from two different ends. If you're working in theater, you've probably got a lot more agency here because you, you probably you have more scope to say, uh, as a theatre company director or um, as a performer, um, I'm interested in looking for things in this area. So then it's a case of going through the usual networks or it's a case of saying, let's see if we can get something commissioned. Or it might even be a case of saying, I wonder if there's um, any research groups at the universities, for example, in the Bristol area. Um, they all are open to these sort of things, um, approaching them and saying, look, I'm interested in working on something. You know, can we get some funding together for this? That might be a case of might take a while. It might take be a case of applying for some funding to, to get it off the ground, but but it's certainly possible. And and both you know universities in Bristol are definitely open to um, working in that way and with theatre. Then if you're coming at it more from the science perspective, um, if you're a practicing scientist, for example, think about how you could um, use your own public engagement funding so most research grants um, will have some uh, public engagement funding find out if there's anybody else in your institution who's um, who's worked with theatre or performing arts um, and then um, again it's probably about applying for some funding jointly with a theatre company so that's another option but then you know if you're if you're more in the science communication space it's about looking out for those jobs that might bring you into the positions where science theatre might be something you can suggest public engagement roles again with research groups um, and certainly there have been a few uh, research groups um, that I've worked with in Bristol and Oxford and different places that have been quite interested in that and have you know offered that that um, scope for the public engagement person to actually lead a collaborative project between the researchers and, and a theatre company. Thank you and finally what are your hopes for the future of science theatre and for science communication um, more generally? In terms of science theatre, my hopes are for, to be able to go along to another really interesting performance. <laughs> so I, just, I, would, I hope it carries on uh, in a fruitful way in order for me to be able to attend, uh, attend things. And of course, I'm also interested in, from a research perspective, but just as a member of the public, um, good quality theatre. Um, the arts have suffered a lot with COVID, so uh, really keen to support the arts in any way that I can. Um, so my hopes are to continue having opportunities to, to visit and watch good quality theatre. Um, in terms of science theatre or stroke science communication more broadly, I, there are so many really complex and, and challenging 
um, issues in society today that need science and society to come together to solve them, that I think there will be a role for science communication for the foreseeable future. And I think science theatre plays, plays a part in that. So I think more broadly within science communication, my, my hopes are that we can continue to fund activities um, that are designed around bringing together the broader society and science and thinking about how we can shape and solve these huge, challenging, wicked problems, which aren't going to be solved by either society or science on their own. Emma Whitecamp, it's been really interesting talking to you and huge congratulations on the publication of the new book, Science and Theatre. Well, thank you very much, Rebecca, and thank you for, for inviting me along for the interview. I've really enjoyed the conversation. David, does Science Theatre bring us new audiences? I think that's a really uh, important, interesting point to think about. From my experience of being involved in Science Theatre, um, if you want to reach out to new audiences, it's a, it's a lot of work. Um, when I've worked on science theatre stuff in the past, actually what I've been more interested in is exploring that genre and that space between science and theatre um, and maybe the process of working with a scientist. And so I've been less interested in thinking about the audience mm. because I think um, if, you really, if you're really trying to push a genre in a, in a certain direction you need to focus on the creative aspect rather than the audience um i think i think there's something that emma brought up in the um in the interview which which is quite valid is that that venn diagram between people who are interested in theater and people who are interested in science and i do think sometimes things do fall into that tiny little sliver of a, of a venn diagram um, although, as Emma said, right, right, very rightly, some of the case studies in her book do show that you can reach new audiences. But I feel like that's maybe um, something which is more down to community engagement and that kind of thing, rather than just because it's a theatre. It's not a special thing about theatre. Mm, um, yeah, you have to sort of work harder yeah. on top of the creative process to get the, the new Absolutely. audiences. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I did um, a... When I was studying the... MSc in science communication here before teaching on it I made a theatre show in a camper van specifically yeah. because when I was learning the MSc uh, well, learning on the MSc you know being taught as we still teach now about the importance of engaging with new audiences for, for science communication so I thought if I'm going to make a theatre show and I make it in a theatre space it's only going to attract people who are interested in theatre and want to come to see that science show yeah. whereas if I make a travelling um theatre show in a camper van for example then you could just uh, turn up in someone's back garden but it enables you to take theatre to an audience that wouldn't ordinarily be going out because you surprise them with theatre in a camper van or something like that you're a good student aren't you thanks I think that's why they try to persuade me to work here yeah maybe that's it (laughs) so yeah so it depends where you do it right isn't that the that's the kind of takeaway isn't Mm. it really and it's interesting with science centers as well and arts institutions as well that there's been a bit of a blurring of the boundaries i think because there's been a kind of theaterification or an artsification of science centers not just we the curious in bristol which has gone through a, a, a transition along those lines but similarly in arts places there's more of an embracing of science themes. And 
a bit like with the Venn diagram thing, it's not necessarily a lower bar for engagement. It's just a different bar and you might be talking to the same people. So I think it is really critically important, yes, to explore the creative opportunities to think about who we're doing it with um, and not just think that by making it entertainment, in inverted commas, um, in some form, that people will come that we weren't previously reaching. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree that uh, with that. But also, I think it's absolutely valid to do science theatre because that's a cool and interesting thing to do, regardless of which audience turns up. Yeah, because it pushes kind of creative boundaries a little bit. Absolutely, and it—I it, mean, it's a fairly silly point, really. But I think if if you're interested in science, it doesn't necessarily follow that you're interested in the science that that particular theatre show is going to be talking to you about. So it might well be that you're a physicist and you've suddenly become more interested in biology because that's the topic of the of the thing. So it's not like science is one body of work that you're once you're interested in it, you're interested in. Well, no, absolutely not. And also, how much science do you need to know? to do a science theatre show. This is one of the things made me wonder about because actually we, we get, you know, people get worried about accuracy. Um, and Emma mentioned that in her interview as well. So, you know, working with a scientist, that's great. But, um, you know, when people write plays and they're very political, do they work with politicians? I mean, you know, that's a slightly horrifying thought, isn't it? Depending on the, <laughs> perhaps depending on your particular political outlook mm-hmm. and who the politicians are. But... But I think the point is similar, isn't it? You know, I'm not aware that a playwright writing something about politics or about social science would necessarily seek to partner with somebody in that field. So why would she, why would we be so precious about yeah. it when it comes to yeah. science? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And actually, a lot of the work that I um, have done with Rising Ape has been, um, I would say, in a lot of ways, quite critical mm. or satirical. And it, for those projects, we did not work with scientists because we wanted to comment on science rather than Absolutely. communicate science. And that's that critique is so important, isn't it? Mm. And sometimes, you know, if we if it always has to go through the filter of a professional scientist, then we are really privileging those voices. And perhaps that's not what we want to do at all. Mm. So perhaps we need to release it into the cultural wild, you mm. know, and let people have access to science in a different way. Uh, David, can you tell us a bit about one of the Rising Ape shows? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so one of them, um, which maybe a bit more lighthearted, was called Publish or Perish. Um, anyone who is involved in academia in any way will have heard that phrase before, but it essentially means you have to um, write publications about your work, otherwise you're a goner. Um, and it was a show where um, the audience controlled the life of the, the main character in this um this performance who was a a scientist and they decided what they were going to do as they got into increasingly um, ridiculous science related scenarios Um, but what we were trying to do with that you know it was very stupid and 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 fun Um, but what we were doing is commenting on the absurdity of the the kind of academic and, and scientific you know, um, situation at the moment, you know, the the, the workplace and all, all that kind of stuff. Um, and Interestingly niche audience you've got there. Um, well, yeah, you, you say that, but it was it was actually our most popular show. It was great. I saw it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, so why did you do it? Um, so we did it at um, Bristol Improv Theatre. We did it at Green Man Festival in Einstein's Garden. 
um, and we did it in the um, uh, what's it called the the room above. Okay. Um, White Bear. White Bear. Yeah. What became the Wardrobe Theatre actually, wasn't it? Yeah, it used to be the Wardrobe Theatre. Yeah. It's now and the Wardrobe Theatre's kind of moved out, and now it's called the Room Above. But it's basically a room above a pub. Um, yeah. Um, so we did it in a few different venues. Um, kind of, you know, but those kind of things do attract the same kind of audience wherever you do them. I think you know, studenty types. Mm. Uh, middle class, you know. Um, Is that the same at Green Man? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I <laughs> <laughs> think we've I, identified a problem here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, but we weren't trying to mm. reach out to new audiences with that, um, especially because uh, with a lot of the Rising 8 projects um, that, that I've done over the years, they're things that we decided to do because we thought they would be fun. Um, and we were doing it on our own time, either for very little or no money. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were motivated to just do what, what we wanted to do. Um, and I think this is an issue kind of more broadly is that often these projects have very little funding, which really is very limiting on what you can do. But but yeah, it, it, the the point of it was to, to, add, to kind of get back to what we were talking about, to, was to comment on a situation in science and, and the kind of, um, the kind of working conditions of of science, um, rather than to work with a, a scientist to communicate their work, um, we have done projects like that. But um, as, as another example, we did a um, a show about artificial intelligence called The Audience, and it was about um, it was really responding to um, things which have been cropping up in the news about the use of artificial intelligence, the legal system, and the kind of ethical issues around that, um, and we developed that that show um, independently but then we did invite scientists and researchers to comment on it afterwards um, which was quite um, interesting because it kept our kind of creative integrity and the, the commentary that we were trying to get across but then there was that counterbalance where we, we had a kind of panel discussion afterwards which again is a format which is has its own issues mm-hmm. but um but it was um an opportunity for the scientists to say, okay, this was a bit more accurate, this was less accurate, um, here's what the real situation is, and here's what the scientific consensus would, consensus would say on the issue. Was that part of the same package? So people saw yeah. the performance and then they saw the yeah. panel show? Okay. Yeah. It's quite interesting that, I mean, doing it the way that you do it, obviously there's budget issues, but it does free you from the need to be kind of beholden to funders or scientists or... And obviously you want that, yeah. as you were saying, you, you wanted that sort of credibility yeah. that came with it. So that's interesting. Um, I'm just in the process of writing a funding bid for something sort of loosely based around Frankenstein. But as a um, to encourage the audience to basically construct a creature. And the idea being is through do, constructing this life-size creature, which I hope is going to be a puppet of some sort, um, they will have conversations about challenging topics that are difficult to talk about, things to do with gender, things to do with race, you know, all sorts of identity issues, which are very much part of the culture wars, but are hard to talk about. But I'm hoping by putting it in this kind of slightly abstracted theatrical setting that they will be able to have those conversations, similar conversations, which I'm interested to know whether those translate, um, whether they sort of, you know, that's a sort of conceptual blending, I suppose, is a buzzword, whether that works in different concepts and kind of relates to how they then think differently. 
about things. But I'm also aware that, you know, I can't just do this. I mean, not that I want to do it purely as a piece of fun for me, although that's obviously part of it. But I can't just do that. I'm not just indulging myself. You know, there are mm. research questions that I want to answer. And, you know, I want to publish as part of it. I need to get funding for it. So so there are, there's far more to consider, isn't there, than if you're just a bunch of people thinking, hey, this is a good idea, let's do that. Which is, you know, both of them are kind of exciting in different ways. I think, I mean, making theatre is incredibly difficult, right? So if you're not having fun while you're doing it, then you shouldn't be doing it. Mm. Because, yeah, I think the fun aspect of it is hugely important and shouldn't just be sort of brushed aside in the interests of, you know, targeting the right audience, etc., of course, that's important, but having fun in the process. I'm just trying to be a serious professional person, Andrew. That's all. You well. know, obviously, the, I mean, the primary <laughs> motivation is fun, always. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But but I think I think this is the this the, this kind of shows quite a, a common tension, I think, in science communication quite broadly between um, kind of creative creativity and creative creative expression mm-hmm. and strategic communication, and and this idea that you have to you know you have to have a target audience you have to have your key messages and all this kind of thing when when i've been creating theatrical experiences that's not the the audience is on is on my mind but not in that strategic Mm. sense that i'm trying to get a message to a specific target audience so that they're specifically engaged in a particular scientific Mm. issue um i think when scientists and um, kind of theatre makers are collaborating, I can see that being a potential issue. Although it's also important to remember that in those collaborations, there's usually also a third person involved, like a public engagement professional or professional science communicator who's kind of brokering that relationship. Um, No, that's true. Uh, Cathy, so you were a scientist. Yes. And you've leapt into science communication. Well, sort of called I think probably be more fair through 13 years as a classroom teacher and, okay. a, and a researcher you know so it's been okay yeah. so uh, my question was going to be what made you take the leap but uh, what made you crawl I guess well well mm, yes teaching is great teaching is an amazing thing to do what an amazing privilege to work with young people I did that for 13 years um but it's the hardest job that I've ever done so it feels like it you know you can't do that for your whole life at least I couldn't do it for my whole life um you know and I you know credit to teachers all around the country for the work that they do. I then went to run the, um, as I said, the science programme at Science Centre, which was amazing. And actually it was, it was fantastic to be able to create experiences, often quite theatrical experiences and shows for um, school-aged children, broadly speaking, but without Ofsted, actually, and with an awful lot more funding. I mean, I was working in, in a school where we couldn't replace test tubes when they broke and you know our photocopying allowance ran out halfway through the term that was for staff never mind students so it was a totally different world and that was that was really exciting um but I also had some questions not bad questions but you know it generated in me some kind of I suppose academic related questions about science communication and actually truthfully I didn't know about science communication as a discrete discipline until I arrived at the Science Centre and people were talking about it and I was like, what's this? Mm-hmm. What is this thing? Um, so, yeah, so I found I was doing it without realising I was doing it. And I think there's a lot in formal education that 
is very similar to what happens in the informal sector. You know, I think often there's a kind of a bit of a, you know, a bit of disdain on both sides, if I'm perfectly honest. I think science communicators sometimes think that teachers sort of line children up and beat them with rulers. Um, and actually, science communication is where you do the fun stuff, mm. which actually obviously is a misrepresentation entirely. Um, and I think school teachers are amongst the most creative people I've worked with, because as David was alluding to, you have to do it on zero budget. So all you've got really is your own creativity to work with. And if you know, if you can engage a class of 30 year eight students, then you're doing very well. Mm. You know, and that's there some of the toughest audiences you can probably have. And the feedback you get is instantaneous, I can tell you. So, you know, there's no doubt there. No need for evaluation <laughs> reports. Oh, so now you found yourself teaching science in public spaces and yeah. essentially taking theatre into public spaces is, is what we're talking about here. Yeah, very um, much so. And it's, you teach about science theatre in... Uh, well, I, actually, I teach Well, actually, you do that, really. Yeah. yeah, so we look at science in all sorts of public-facing contexts. It might be in a park, it might be a mobile planetarium. Um, it could be in a science centre, it could be in a visitor centre of some sort. We went to um, Aerospace Bristol last week, looking at um, the aerospace industry in Bristol, um, in, in Filton. And, you know, that's really interesting, certain type of science, a certain type of a way of presenting science and the sort of scientific endeavour. So we kind of, you know, we go to these places and we enjoy being there and then we critique them in, a, you know, interesting ways through all sorts of, you know, theoretical ways we can have of looking at those experiences and seeing how they work for different audiences. And, and also, you know, going back to what David was saying, sometimes there is a, a message and I think the danger with that, with thinking about the message first, is that science communication can become very earnest. Mm. And that's where fun is important, isn't it? Or at least entertainment is fun. You know, there has to be something in it for the people engaging with it. And if they just think they get there to learn something about, you know, why they shouldn't smoke or, um, you know, why they should do a certain thing or think a certain thing, then I think that's a bit of a turn-off. If you're interested in reading the book and getting hold of your own copy of the book, it is Science and Theatre, Communicating Science and Technology with Performing Arts by Emma Whitecamp and Carla Almeida. We'll post a link to that, of course, on the webpage for this episode of Science Chatters. So apart from teaching science theatre on science and public spaces, I also teach wildlife film and media here at UWE. As one of our students, Raquel Dawn Hansen, who studied the Masters in Wildlife Filmmaking here at UWE, has recently won an award for her film, The Flight of the Puffin. Here is Raquel Dawn Hansen speaking to former student on the MSc in Science Communication here at UWE, Georgina Hayes. I'm Icelandic. I have a background in zoology and a double master's in wildlife conservation and filmmaking. So I've always been very passionate about animals and wildlife and conservation in particular. I've worked with Arctic foxes in Iceland and sea otters in California. So I've done bits and bobs before I realized that I really wanted to go into filmmaking to reach as many people as possible. So that's a little bit about me. I've been living in Bristol now for two years.
It's something we've always grown up with. We always heard about kids during the summer on school holidays go and collect puffins and release them. And then you always knew of the traditions. I was always very jealous as a kid. So that was really fun part of the film to actually get to release puffins myself. Other than it just being an Icelandic tradition, I didn't really grow up around it. So it was even more interesting diving into the traditions themselves. Raquel Dawn Hansen's film, Flight of the Puffin, follows the story of an Icelandic community's relationship with the vulnerable puffin species and has recently won the Royal Television Society Award in the sustainability category. Flight of the Puffin is an ethnographic documentary into the conservation and hunting of puffins in Iceland. And so it explores how these old traditions have morphed throughout the years and how people are still maintaining them, but have adjusted to our changing world as it is today. It's incredibly important for Icelanders, especially. We, These are animals we've grown up with. We don't have a lot. So the ones that we do have, we really want to protect at least the majority of them. So I think it's incredibly important for Icelanders to adapt to the changing conditions and to the varying changes in the puffin population, while also maintaining something that they grew up with and hold very dear. It's, it, it was a way for them to bond with their family members and friends and stay close to their grandparents. But of course, they don't want to lose these traditions or lose the birds. I think people, especially the hunters, um, it's very easy to vilify them. There are pros and cons to, to it, no doubt. But I don't think because they're there every day, they're the people that see the, the change first. The scientists that I did interview for the documentary actually told me that they realized the population was plummeting because the hunters came to them and said, something's wrong here. Things are changing. We need to act fast. And so I think, no, it wasn't hard for them to kind of change how they act. I do think there are other aspects that the documentary didn't have time to explore, and that's where tourism comes in. That sort of demand hasn't changed, and that doesn't take into account where the population's standing. Surprisingly, even though it was supposed to be a film about puffins. I really fell in love with the characters. I found August because he had stopped hunting for 15 years. And so I did this film in two parts. And I did an interview with him the first time around when I went out and he he wasn't going to hunt. He was never going to hunt again. And then two days before I came for my second visit, he calls me up and says, I think you have to change your story. I've started hunting again. And so we just rolled with it. And his explanation of why he started to hunt and how he wanted his kids to still grow up with that tradition in a world where we're so surrounded by social media and screens and all these this fast-paced life. He really wanted to slow it down for his kids and get them in touch with their roots, take them out, keep them in nature, let them hold an animal, whether it was releasing them or teaching them how to sustainably harvest something from nature. I think that really stood out for me. And I think that was really lovely. There are deeper stories into it. It's not all perfect. There isn't that perfect harmony 
and that's not to do with the hunters. That's, like I said, the pressures from tourism industries who want to come and eat puffins. So there's definitely more to it than you can see in the first 13 minutes. And I'm always happy to chat. So if anybody wants to reach out and talk more about it, or if anybody wants to make a bigger film with me, I'm, I'm happy. Can I just say that I didn't know the word puffling before, and I'm, now I'm glad I do, because yes. it's the cutest thing. <laughs> Isn't that a lovely thing? Thank you very much to Georgina and Raquel for that conversation. And if you'd like to watch the film, it's just over 13 minutes long and is available to watch if you follow the link on the UE Bristol website for this episode of Science Chatters, which is, of course, called Performing Pufflings. So if you'd like to pause this episode now, go and watch that film and then come back to our discussion, feel free, although you can just carry on listening now. So, David, Kathy, what did you make of the film? I thought it was great. I just, I really liked how it showed, although actually very little science, um, but I, what I really liked that it showed this very, very caring, respectful relationship with nature that um, uh, the people uh, in the film have. Um, and how it was really tied to kind of heritage and tradition and that kind of thing. That was a really interesting exploration of those ideas. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, actually. And I think it, it also, as David was sort of suggesting, it explored the tension between tradition and, because they said, you know, losing, the, losing tradition or losing the birds, mm. which is interesting, isn't it, that it's, um, that it's perceived that way. Mm. And you could map that onto lots of things about other things that we do that we might like to change. Like, you know, like fox hunting, for instance, would a, a similar argument would have been forwarded for that. So I think there's lots of issues that it raises. Um, and I thought the characterisation was really cleverly done because it started off with this like, lovely family man, you know, taking his kids out to collect pufflings. And then five minutes later, he was wringing a neck of a puffin. Yeah. I was like, I thought I liked you. Now I hate you. You know that was um, that was an interesting interesting little twist. No pun intended. Mm. It's an interesting counterpoint in the big right at the very start though, because I don't know about you, but in that very first scene, I thought there was some criminal activity going on. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> so did I. Yeah. I mean, just to, just for the avoidance of that, I don't actually hate the character. But I mean, no. what I mean is, it, it was it was quite an emotional roller coaster, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Mm. Really? Did I you didn't, not think so? I did not get that at all. <gasps> you psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's interesting that you saw tension between tradition and, you know, hunt the birds and get rid of them all or keep nature, mm -hmm. where I saw they had actually found a way to preserve both. Mm. So I didn't pick up on that, that oh, tension at all, actually. Oh, okay. Because, um, as they said, they'd reduce hunting by 98%, okay. which... You know, they were still hunting, but in a drastically reduced way. They were preserving the tradition, but in a way which preserved the, the population of Parthians. And, and I think they the people portrayed in the film really acknowledged very clearly that if they overhunt the Parthians, their tradition is going to die. 
So mm. the way that they need to maintain the tradition is to do it in an environmentally sensitive way. Yes. Or the other option, of course, is to not maintain the tradition. Is it important to maintain traditions? Um, not at all costs. No. I would agree with that. Uh, I do think in the film they make a really valid point about um, preserving her- like intergenerational bonding, preserving heritage. Um, and also I feel like there was a really interesting element about masculinity in there as well mm, yeah. and ma- male bonding or, or whatever you want to call it um, and the the kind of counter example that um, the guy in the film gave was becoming a football hooligan <laughs> yes and then his daughter was saying oh I love the little pufflings mm. I was yeah. thinking do you know what your daddy does mm. but, but but there was that that kind of counterbalance of, of care and yes hunt, hunting because um, and I think also it's e- it is easy, isn't it, to demonise people who do those sorts of things. And, you know, and it's true in this country too, that often people who are very connected to nature and connected to the natural world are also people who hunt or farm or, you know, who who kill animals in all sorts of different ways, for whether it's to, to sell them or to eat them or whatever. Um, so, yeah, so they, they often have a very deep understanding of how the natural world works and about sustainability. So I don't think they are, um, you know, opposed to any of those sort of ideas. I just think it's, you know, to, to sort of protect tradition for its own sake, I think is probably going to lead us down a road that we, yeah. isn't necessarily positive. I think it's a sort of case-by-case thing, isn't it? Some traditions suck and some are entirely worth hanging on to. And I think you just have to kind of evaluate them in the in the context of society now yeah. you know they, I mean, it's not hard to think of horrible things that people used to do no it's not it's really not or currently do but there's if, <laughs> if yeah. so it i'm looking at this from bristol i'm looking at a a couple of islands in iceland should i be judging it and, and how would they look at what happens down the road from here sometime um in terms of hunting and people supporting fox hunting and that sort of thing. Is it a similar story? Absolutely not, I don't think so. Because fox hunting is just for entertainment, essentially. Um, and as far as I could tell from the film, they're hunting for to eat the, to eat the, uh, the birds. Um, and also they're doing it in a very, very sensitive way. Like, the, the whole thread through the, through the film was that they yes they're hunting the birds but they're making sure they maintain the population they're protecting the young birds they don't hunt birds which are, which ha- have um chicks because mm-hmm. the ones which are carrying food they didn't hunt um and also they hunt them in a way which causes minimal suffering to the animal um, which fox hunting does not do um so i do think it is a different issue mm. um are we do we know that it's not in any way recreational? I mean, it sounded like that the character, I can't remember his name in the film, that it was a choice for him to go back and start hunting again. It wasn't that, you know, I'm doing this because I need it as part of my livelihood. It, it felt like something that he went out to do at the weekend with his son, not something he was doing as a job. So I don't know that I'm persuaded that it's entirely, um, you know, the sort of noble savage kind of argument. I, I think it, <laughs> felt, it felt like it did feel a little bit closer to recreational hunting and if you think it I mean not all hunting in this country traditionally has been upper class obviously fox hunting and yeah. stag hunting has been yeah. but you know hair coursing and you know 
other types of hunting that people have done have have been a more working class pursuit mm. um, for which people might forward all kinds of different reasons for doing it. But I don't necessarily think that it gets a pass simply on that basis alone, actually. It did feel to me like the tug for him was this masculine, traditional lifestyle. And uh, the on the other side, looking after the birds. There didn't seem to be that much of a... Um, a need for the hunting in terms of food. They'd stopped hunting, they were still eating. So yeah. it's felt to me like the it was like he was sitting on the island, there were all those birds, and it felt like the way things used to be, so he got involved in, in hunting again. I think the film shows that the importance that hunting has. Not that I'm a massive supporter of hunting. I feel like I'm, I'm coming well, across as like... we're wondering now. <laughs> but, but I think it's very easy for us um, to sit here and, and really trivialise that, that because it's something that isn't important for us. No, I, it's essentially I'm asking the question because I don't know. It is, it's how I feel it, when I watch it. Is I, as someone from Manchester who now lives in Bristol and has never been to Iceland and never done hunting and never been a fan of it. My personal reaction to it is the selling points for it were tradition, eating birds, and this, you know, what we got in the film, which was listening to dirty stories of men <laughs> telling stories downstairs, and that being all part of this tradition. And that, I think, is... Um, it was the intense masculinity... Yes. And that culture, that masculine culture, that I found the more objectionable part of it as well. I mean, and, and to be fair, he was the one who said, you know, what are my kids going to do, go out and be a football hooligan? Yeah. And I thought, well, I'm sure, you know, there's lots of Icelanders who might have a different perspective on what the options are for young people. Yeah. It's not this kind of binary choice, you know, kill puffins or um, yeah. fight at football matches. So it was, he set he set that up, you know, so it's, that's not necessarily, that was, that's his yeah. own internal justification for why he's come back to it and it from what he said it felt as if I mean we're looking at through the eyes of one person aren't we in mm. fairness um mm. and the filmmaker but um it was tradition trumps all mm. that was the message that came across to me and it didn't mm. feel as if there was much um kind of analysis beyond that really completely I just the film just poses the questions doesn't it and you know I'm reposing them really if anything is tradition so important that we kill birds. I mean, egg hunters might say the same thing. Mm. You know, that's a really important recreational culture. But they may say, you know. For, to me, egg hunters means Easter. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> People who collect eggs. So it's illegal now. It's completely illegal. You're not even allowed to display eggs. You're not allowed to keep eggs, display them, anything. Certainly not allowed to go out and collect them from wild birds. But... It was quite hard work, you know, and actually partly it was promoted by naturalists, um, you know, from the Victorian times onwards um, and seemed to be quite a noble pursuit. But some people became, you know, the community became very um, sort of addicted to it. And it's still a real problem where there are breeding programmes for endangered birds, but people might regard that in some strange way as being an important part of their heritage too, particularly if they've grown up doing it with their fathers, you know, going out, um, doing that sort of outdoorsy stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I think it's, you know, but one can kind of deploy these arguments to shore up all sorts of unattractive behaviour. 
Hmm. Okay, David. <laughs> I feel like I've turned into the pro hunting. We <laughs> set you up beautifully. I know. I I just think it's more a bit more complex than that. Um, in this specific instance shown in the in the film, because because they go to they clearly go to great pains to protect the puffins. Um, they're not egg hunters. It's not. I don't think it's the, the, quite the same thing, because they, you know, a lot of the film was about them catching the the lost pufflings, looking after them, and then re- releasing them out back into the wild. So I think the key thing is right. The film doesn't answer this question. It just poses these questions, mm-hmm. yes. which is which is a brilliant thing to to be able to do that. And I think there are other examples of films which have, for example, Sea Spiracy which have looked at sustainable uh, practices like this in a much less balanced way. Yeah. And it is a very good thing that this film has done it in such a balanced way. One thing which I think wasn't covered in the film, but what um, uh, Raquel did mention in the interview, was that um, part of the reason there was so much pressure on the puffin population was because of, of tourism. So it wasn't actually the traditional hunting which was causing this drop in puffins um but that people were coming from outside to and i presume more to hunt for just for the pure fun of it um and not having that same um kind of sensitivity to the the population and the environment and and so on were they coming Um, as hunters or were they coming as tourists like bird watchers i assumed the latter but um, i don't know whether I I assumed it was people coming to eat puffins. Oh, okay. Because they mentioned in the film it was a, it's a delicacy, right? What what I assumed at least was that tourism creates a demand for puffin meat beyond what would normally be on these small islands. You know, what I also thought was really interesting, which was only really briefly mentioned, was that the relationship between the hunters and the scientists. Because mm. um, the hunt, it was the hunters initially who noticed and reported the drop in puffin population. Mm. I felt another major omission from the film was to develop the climate change theme, which is such an important part of the story. And it felt that that was that was missed out of, or actually sort of always sort of rather glossed over because that's really what's had the biggest impact, is from from what I understood from the film, on the puffin population in the first place. Um, so that would have been nice to see that come through a little bit more because that's not going away anytime soon. That's interesting. Well, as Raquel said in the interview, she's very happy to talk more about it and indeed very happy to make a longer film. And maybe these issues will be developed in that longer film if, it's, uh, if it happens. If you want to watch the film, you can. We will post a link to it on the UE website for this particular episode of Science Chatters. I think it's probably time to call an end to this particular episode. Thank you very much to David and Cathy for joining me for this. And thank you very much indeed to Georgina Hayes and Rebecca London and, of course, Raquel Don Hansen and Emma Whitecamp for joining us for this episode. Science Chatters.